Welcome everybody to another episode of Tech to Mark. I'm Mark Lucero, recording this in Seoul. Thanks for joining me. It's been a couple weeks off. Last week was in Tokyo. This week, Seoul. Obviously, first time in Seoul. I've been to Tokyo a couple times. Love going to Tokyo. Love going back there. I was really happy to go back there. It had been a few years since I was there last. First time here. One of the things I'll, I'll relate kind of all this to, we'll circle back. Obviously, we have the outsized presence of North Korea in the distance. In the U.S., you know, when you're inside the geographic, you know, mainland of the U.S., we don't often feel the direct impact of geopolitics and, and things like that, foreign affairs. We hear about it, but don't often have, they don't often have a tangible impact on our lives. However, last week in Tokyo, one of the mornings, uh, Kim Jong-un sailed a missile over us and landed in the Sea of Japan. Kind of a normal thing. He does this every so often when he likes to act out or when he likes to protest certain things. I think at the time it was protesting maybe U.S. and South Korea joint military exercises. Anyway, that happened. Some sirens went off in certain parts of the city, not necessarily where we were in Odaiba, but still, you feel that, oh, like, geez, a freaking missile flew over today. So anyway, my first time here in Seoul, obviously we have North Korea in the distance and so looking at the map, seeing how close we were to sort of the border and the militarized zone and all that. And it's just, it's, it's almost fascinating. There can be a rogue state like that in these modern times that's really so close. Obviously very closely related to another rogue state, Iran, where there's been protests there for almost a month. Women protesting, students protesting, actually a lot of people protesting, and the brutal dictatorship trying to put it down here and there. So I've actually been trying to think about this and think about how to sort of process it. And my my thoughts and my, my, my prayers are with the people protesting, and I hope that they can affect change. Getting back to the tennis, I have Chris Eubanks coming on today. Chris... <laughs> Chris is a real student of the game, great guy who I love talking to, I love talking tennis with him. He's going to come on a little later. He's played some really good tennis lately. He's getting his ranking right, right on the outside of getting into the main draws of the Grand Slams directly without having to qualify. He's been putting up some results lately. Good U.S. Open for him. Pretty good San Diego qualifying there as well, like he did in New York. And he is right on the cusp. Chris is a real, real fun guy to watch play. Big serve. Beautiful one-headed backhand, nice hands around the net, good volleys. He can be one of those guys who sort of takes the racket out of his opponent's hand when all is clicking. So we are going to get to Chris right after the break. However, before we get to Chris, I want to talk a little bit about the women's event going on in San Diego right now. The women are having a big event down there at 500 level at a great spot in the calendar. It's right before the premier event down in Mexico. So you have, I think, 17 of the top 20 were initially entered. I think you have 12 of the top 20 that were in the draw. So it's stacked field. If you were there in San Diego, this is where I grew up. I grew up in San Diego. I grew up playing at that site at the Barnes Tennis Center. It was built when I was a freshman in high school. We started playing there. It was actually my high school's home site starting my sophomore year. I'm not sure. I don't think we actually lost. I wonder if we lost any matches there. I'm not sure over the next three years. I don't know if we lost any home. I don't, yeah, I don't think we lost any matches there. Not that I, None that I can remember because we didn't lose many matches, period, after that, my sophomore through senior years. But great venue for lunch. Go around the corner, hit Chris's Liquor. Great menu, great deli there. They make their sandwiches to order. They got a bomb-ass menu, so check it out. For dinner, go to Cali's downtown. It's a new restaurant. My boy Rudy, his company did the concept and the design for it. Super cool spot, great chef. A lot of farm-to-table stuff, a lot of fresh seafood. Really creative sort of California fusion type menu. Also, if you want some OG Mexican food, Santana's, that was my go-to spot in high school, a great California burrito there, get the achote chicken, or Los Cuatro Milta, 
That is in Barrio Logan downtown. That is where the true OGs in San Diego go. Beans, chorizo. <laughs> it's not going to get any better than that. After the break, let's get to my man Chris Dubas. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. I'm excited. Dude, I thought you were like exclusive to Mike Cation's podcast, so I didn't know if I should ask you or not. <laughs> no, I try to sub in there when Noah Rubin is off doing whatever he's doing and whatever <laughs> ventures he's getting a part of. So I, I love jumping on with Mike and Noah, but when you asked, I said immediately. We've had pretty good conversations and talked to tennis before, so I was like, why not do it uh, over the airways? Yeah, so let's talk about challengers. We're here in Seoul. You were in Guangzhou last week. I want to talk about the challenges of the challengers. So you had a good fall, good US Open, qualied, won a good first round, Pedro Martinez, and then you qualied in San Diego, got some good momentum. What's it like going from, you know, those kind of tournaments, coming here to Korea, going to Guangzhou last week, Seoul? What's the mentality like for you? Well, for me, even taking the, deciding to come to Korea after where I usually stay in the U.S. during this time of year was kind of just, I wanted to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. I wanted to kind of put myself in situations in which I am a bit uncomfortable in which I can, you know, hopefully bring out some of my best tennis where I know a lot of players will say when you're at home, there's a sense of almost like you can, you relax a little bit. When you're out on the road and you're abroad, you're kind of more willing to, to dig in and fight your way out and problem solve and, and do whatever you got to do to win because no one wants to lose early and then have to stick around for a whole nother week. So that was the thought process. And I just wanted to kind of, like you said, continue with the momentum that I had built in the fall and moving on to, uh, over here to Korea. There's a couple bigger challenges here than what's going on in the U.S. So it was a good opportunity. I still think it is. It's just there's it's a lot different than what I expected. And it's not as much about, you know, what Korea is. I think Korea is great. But some of the we, we, what we've talked about, I had heard so many players over the years say, oh, when you go to Korea, courts are nice and quick. Uh, you'll love it over there. And, you know, they usually tend to use the lighter balls and it's perfect for your game style. And the first day we get to Guangzhou and we're hitting on the courts, I go, man, these things are slow and really low bouncing, which don't usually lend itself to some of my best tennis. I, like you said, I quality in one around in Newport this summer, so the low bouncing course, I can, I can make it work. But it's just very, very different. Conditions are very slow. Temperatures dropped. Uh, I think my first couple of days in Guangzhou, we were in the 80s and it was humid. Great. Love those conditions. And then the drop of a hat high started to get more around 65 and i'm like what's going on so it's been a little bit of just kind of trying to problem solve and and, and deal with the the adjustments that you know traveling abroad and coming to korea for three weeks can bring so hopefully this last week can go pretty well for me you know i think a lot of people have this idea around especially people that are kind of used to just following the main tour they have this idea that when people have success at the tour level and they go to the challengers they say go down to the challengers like it's a cakewalk. Like dudes are out here playing for their lives. It, yeah, and I think a lot of people, if they went, if they were to come out and watch Challenger tennis up close, I think the the thing is, and I'll even talk about it with with friends that even play on tour. Television just doesn't really do it justice. It's really tough to get a feel on how good the players are if you're not able to either watch them practice live or watch them play live. And you can sit here and you can watch a lot of the tour events that are going on. And, um, in Europe right now, the indoors, but you come out here, the level isn't that much different. You have guys out here who are fighting, guys out here who are hungry, and can bring out some of their best tennis at any time. And a lot of the guys playing challengers, you go down and you look at the, the names in the list, have competed in slams. I think Wu Yibing, who is in the quarters here, qualified into the U.S. Open third round and played Medvedev. Like, he, he's a good, good player, and he's 
unseated here at the Challengers. So the level here is really, really good. And I think that's something that a lot of people really should kind of take more note of. And, and if they have the opportunity, obviously, you know, it, it may cost depending on where you live. But if you have the opportunity to go and check out a Challenger up close, I think you'll have a greater appreciation for the level that a lot of guys can play with. I think because of the stakes, because of what's at stake, because of, you know, the implications of a couple of good results in challengers, you know, get you into a grand slam or whatever it is. I've always felt like as a coach, just seeing the different levels, matches down down here, I don't know, like say down, matches here are a lot of times tougher to win than when you're playing, you know, people at the tour level who might maybe roll over after a set or something. Guys down here don't roll over. A hundred percent. They can't <laughs> afford to because, yeah. like you say, the challenger, and it's similar like that at, you know, tour events as well, but I think more so at challengers, you look at a lot of the guys in in the draw, a lot of guys feel like they're one big result away from really catapulting their career into a different level. Uh, you look at, you know, we're playing here at a 110. You add 110 points to any of these guys' rankings, they're going to take a big jump and be able to be in a little bit different place, maybe professional, maybe closer to top 100, maybe inside the top 100, maybe certain guys who are lower might be a seed in Grand Slam quality. So, like, there's some, there's some a lot on the line, and you have – in theory, 32 players who are looking at this opportunity and saying, this could be my week. It, we've seen so many times in which players will just kind of come out of nowhere and have a good one or two or three week standing challengers, and they never look back. Everyone down, we're hoping that this every week is going to be our week, and that's where I think you see a lot of that fire and that fight come from. And, and you know, people like to equate the challengers and the futures with sort of the minor leagues and in, in, in basketball or baseball. But in those sports, you're waiting for a GM to call you up. Here, you know, it's in your own hands, essentially, which I, I think is why there's you know, you see so much, you know, so much drive, so much fight, so much you know, angst and anxiety too. Yeah, I think it, it, similar, just like you say in baseball or even in the G League, you need someone to give you the opportunity. In tennis, we can make our own opportunity. We can come out. It, it, I would love to see the stakes of a G League game in which if you told every player, these are your, this is what you need to hit in order to get to the league, and let's see how hard. The, and those guys are already playing extremely hard. But if you tell them, hey. If you score 25, 10, and 5, or you get 10, 12, and 8, or you get 6, 10, and 10, you're going to be in the NBA tomorrow. I think you're going to see a lot of guys going a lot harder, and that's kind of what it is down here. We see a lot of guys who are looking at every opportunity as this could be my week. I could be in tour level if I can just put together a good four or five matches this week, maybe do it again next week. And let's just see where the year goes. I think, like you say, with the fact that we can control our own destiny to some degree makes for that intensity to be a lot higher and produces some really good tenants. And as a result of all that, like this is where I think players get filtered out, foot players trying to come up and players also trying to hang on. The challenges aren't set up for guys to play great tennis. You know, there's a lot of obstacles like no one's picking you up at the airport, like, you know, <laughs> laundry's hit and miss, transportation's hit and miss. And one of the things that we've talked a little bit about, the balls. So the I was looking at the calendar. You guys in Guangzhou, you played with a head ball. Yeah, one of the heaviest balls I've ever used in my life. And I said, wow, okay, this is very, very different. But luckily, in Guangzhou, it was a little warmer at that time. So I could kind of make it work for serving. Like I said, the courts were pretty low bouncing and slow. But you you just fight and you figure it out. You figure it out. And then we get here to, to Seoul, and all of a sudden, we're using a Babolat ball that... Although the balls are new, they feel very dead. I don't know if, if, if any of your listeners have ever taken a brand new can that's been sitting for maybe one or two years out and tried to open it up to play. And it looks good. It has the smell that everybody loves. You can't really squeeze it. But when you bounce it, the sound just doesn't sound right. It sounds like it's flat. 
we get here and all of a sudden now I'm like, wow, okay, so we're using flat balls. So this is going to be pretty interesting. And it's something that we have to adjust to every single week. I believe next week in, um, next week where we'll be playing in Busan, it origi- originally we're supposed to use the Dunlop Aussie Open ball. Probably my favorite ball in mm-hmm. the entire world. Great I ball. love that ball. And then we find out that uh, on the fact sheet, they switched it to the Wilson Extra Duty U.S. Open. Another ball that I really like. <laughs> But, you know, it's just those kinds of things are changing, and maybe to some people they don't think the ball makes a difference, but it, you combine the ball with different court speeds and different temperature outside, it can change, completely change how tennis is played. Uh, even in my singles match here in Seoul, I think I was broken, uh, I can't remember, it was maybe like seven, seven times. times, something like that. I was broken seven times, and I broke five times. It was a nightmare to try to hold serve for me. Just because I felt like I couldn't get the reward that I'm used to. I'm used to getting, you know, a big serve at a good spot. I played a very good returner who stood really far back. And it just shrunk the court to the point where I just couldn't get free points. It was a lot harder for me to hold serve than break serve, which is crazy for me to even say. But when I was returning, I felt a little bit more relaxed. Because I said, all right, I know the ball isn't going to get out of my zone. It can't. It's flat. So I just need to hit through it and go. When I'm serving, it's like, well... I'm trying to serve big. I'm missing first serves. He's getting second serve returns on me deep. Now I'm starting off the back foot. Like, like, ugh, it was so frustrating. But, yeah, it, it's another element that we have to kind of adjust to week in and week out. So as a, as a guy, you know, big guy, big server, you try to set up for your you know, forehand and get in, what type of ball do you like? You like a lively ball? I want, a li- I want lively conditions. Okay. I want it jumpy. A light ball is preferable, but if the conditions outside are warm, that naturally is going to speed things up. But I need the ball to have some life. I can't, it can't be just super dead. It was just something that I felt here. Um, but I typically want a light ball. I want it livelier. I want it to not fuzz up as much, you know, kind of stay bald, which means it can continue to move through the air as quick as possible. I think that's part of the reason I've done pretty well in Australia, the times that I've, I've gone down there, quality in. U.S. Open, hot conditions. The Good U.S. Ball. Open ball. It's the ball I've been playing with since I was nine years old at every USDA tournament around the country for the most part. So... I think I'm more accustomed to that one, but those conditions tend to suit my game a little bit, uh, a little bit better than the the 55 degrees and uh, conditions that we had to play in here. So, you know, the, the 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 margins are so narrow between guys, and you talk about like the subtle differences in conditions and how they can favor certain players. Looking at last week, like guys who went deep in Guangzhou, I'm thinking like Emilio Gomez, like a Mark Pullman's, Mark Pullman's, like even yourself. And then even in Fairfield, like Zach Savage won the tournament. Like all these guys went out first match the following week. What do you attribute to that? Is that is that the level? Is that because things are so close? Is that like the subtle difference of the conditions? Well, I think I think every I can only really speak for what happened over here. I think in Korea, I think the the conditions were very very different, and it also doesn't obviously you love going deep in tournaments, but when you go deep in one tournament, and you're playing the next week, kind of hinders or, or halts your preparation for the next week and getting acclimated, getting adjusted. So we got in, I believe, on Sunday. We weren't able to practice. Monday comes, it rains the entire day. I don't get to touch the court until Tuesday, right before my match for my warm up. Which I was able to get acclimated with the conditions. It wasn't that. It wasn't you know that big of a deal, but. I do think there is something to be said for when you look at a lot of the guys, all four guys who were in the semifinals and finals last week, all lost first round this week. I believe Peros ended up retiring, so maybe his could be a little bit more physical. Um, but, yeah, I think there's something there. In terms of Zach, I mean, Zach had the, probably the week of his you know, professional career thus far last week, and there's always a bit of an adjustment period coming back the following week. So I'm just, you know, watching from afar. That's the only thing I could maybe attribute it to. 
But in here, I think just kind of different conditions, different weather, different ball also plays a part. When you're coming out there, and I believe Emilio played uh, Mochizuki, who ended up uh, qualifying again, so he had two matches under his belt. I played a very good player, um, and then you know fell in the third. And uh, I believe Pullman's also lost in the third to a player that he beat in the quarterfinals of last week in Guangzhou. So it's it's funny. I, I definitely think the margins are very small, but I do think preparation, at least here in Korea, from week one to week two, definitely plays a part. So we were chatting, you know, in the, I think on the, the rainy day, and I found out you're a same restaurant every night of the week kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it, it takes all the thinking out of it for me. <laughs> so Sloan's a little bit like that. Like she finds a place and then hits it, like keeps going. You don't ever, you don't get sick of it. You, you order the same thing. Like say you have a good run deep in the tournament. You ordering the same meal or you mixing things up, hitting the whole menu. So it's not, yeah, I'm, but I'm more of a same meal type, but that's just, that's just lazy by me. It's <laughs> not really a superstition, I would say. But it's just more, it's easy. During the U.S. Open, I got to go to one of my favorite Italian restaurants in New York called Cafe Fiorello, and we went first night before Qualies. They have one of the best pepperoni pizzas I've ever had. And I believe every night before my match, I went back to Cafe Fiorello, and I believe I went even nights in between just because if I didn't want to think, it was open late, too, which also That's helps good. Huge in, in New York. York. Yeah. Being open late helps big time. So just kind of being like, you know what, I'm hungry. What do I, Chipotle's around the corner, I don't want that. I kept it for you, boom. And we go, we get the same thing. I started to get on first name basis with a lot of the, the bartenders and the waiters and waitresses. So for me, it's just an easy thing. I, I don't really want to call it a superstition. It's just, I go early, I find that first spot, I go, this spot has something I like. Well, it's only we're only here for a week. We're in New York, so I think I was there for like two and a half. But it uh, never really grows old because we're only there for a small amount of time. But you also like Cliff Bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, that's like my my guilt, my healthy guilty pleasure. It's like my my own little chocolate chip cookie <laughs> before coming over. Especially traveling abroad, I always try to bring little snacks just just in case you're not quite sure if you're gonna like the food yeah, in the smart, place. Yeah. You need to be able to have something that you can just resort to. So right before going to the airport in LA to fly to Korea, I made sure to stop at a Ralph's grocery store <laughs> and bought about seventy two Cliff bars, and I had no. It's funny, going through the aisle, they had boxes of 18, so I just grabbed four boxes. I didn't really do the math on it. I didn't realize, oh, I'm only gone for a max of maybe 23 days. I'm, I just bought four boxes, and as I'm taking them into the parking lot and I'm putting them into my luggage, I realized I think I probably got a little too many. This is probably a bit much, so I was able to squeeze them all in there. I put a few in my backpack, ate probably three or four on the flight, but also got some salted almonds and just kind of, you know, just munch on it, so I think right now... 72 is probably down to, I've been here for just about two weeks. I'm probably down to 59, 58. I still got a long way to go, but this should probably take me into the rest of the year. Yeah, it's all good, man. I usually pack like three or four of the Uncrustables. You know, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those. I love the Uncrustables. Those are some of my favorites. So, okay, what's the rest of the year look like for you tennis-wise? So I have uh, the tournament next week in Busan. Then I'll take a week off in L.A. before going to Charlottesville, Knoxville, Champaign, where I end the year with the three indoor challengers there. And that's when we start off season. We start preparing for Australia. So that's kind of where my my schedule uh, lies right now, and I'm excited about it. All right, couple quick questions. Favorite city to go to on tour? Favorite city to go to on tour? That is tough. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to be biased and just choose somewhere in the U.S. So I want to choose somewhere somewhere abroad. Right, favorite city outside the U.S. For, favorite city outside the U.S. Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne is probably my top favorite. Um, after that, I'll probably say 
I went there for the first time this year, and I was surprised at how much I liked it. it was Bordeaux. I played the 125 Heard there, and I really, really liked yeah. Bordeaux. It was, it was really, 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 really nice city. Um, but Melbourne is always probably my, my most exciting place in which, um, like, when I'm preparing for off-season, knowing I'm getting ready to go to Australia, it just makes me train a little harder just because I love going to Australia. And are you a are you a book guy? Are you a video game guy? Are you like a Netflix guy? I'm a Netflix guy. I'm a YouTube and Netflix YouTube. guy. YouTube. Yeah, I'm a stream. I I'm not a gamer. I've just it never really got into. I tried when I was younger because yeah. all of my friends did it, and it just I also wasn't very good. We would play games and teams, and I'd be the last one. I love sports games. I love Madden. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. Uh, NBA 2K. But after that, it just kind of all blurs to me. Um, so I'm definitely YouTube. Netflix right now, HBO Max. I what just, are you watching right now? So I just, I know I'm super late, but I just finished Game of Thrones. Uh, I've never I, seen it. So I didn't think I would like it. Yeah. I said something about medieval time. That just doesn't interest me. And I had tons of friends telling me, just watch it. It's not about kings and queens and dragons. It's just the writing is so good. The writing is so good. So I watched season one. And they also gave me the warning, you know, don't get too attached to any characters because, you know, no characters above, you know, dying. And I said, okay, guys. So I watched the first season. Okay, it was a little bit of a shock, but, you know, I'm st- the, everyone is hyped to show up to be so great, and I'm just kind of moseying on through it. I get to season two. I'm like, guys, I still don't see it. They go, just get to season three. They told, I had a friend say, just watch season three, and if you don't like it after that, just stop. The last episode of season three hooked me like that. Or maybe like the second to last episode hooked me like that. And I finished the rest of it. I think it was about eight seasons. I finished all of them. And now I've just started House of Dragon. I'll probably have that finished by the train ride to Busan tomorrow. Um, and then after that, there's a couple other shows. Secession. That oh, I'm man. Love Succession. So I'm on season two of that on HBO. And after that, I got to try to find some new ones. Dougley, I think I'll be good for this trip. Yeah. Um, but after that, I got to try to find some new ones before going to Australia. And one last thing: you're a student of the game. Who do you like to watch on YouTube? You, gonna, you know, you, I know you go and watch some old you know, match videos or slow mo videos. Who do you like to watch? If you could recommend to the fans, like, say, hey, go watch this video. Like, blew my mind. Uh, it's so di- uh, so for. I try to take a little bit of everybody. So typically, a lot of times, what I'll do is I watch a lot of the big guys. I'll watch. The other day, I was watching Anderson in the U.S. Open, in which the year that he finally playing, like Shapo, I think it was mm. third or fourth round on Armstrong. I watched that match. I'll watch old matches of Milos. I'll watch, you know, John sometimes, but I think me and John is just a little bit different just because of how dominant he is on serve. And unfortunately, I'm not that dominant <laughs> on serve, so I, I watch the bigger guys and how they construct points. Delpo is always a good one to watch, but my favorite is Fed. Like, I just can't not just... The grace, and especially with him just now retiring, it kind of makes you kind of reflect back as a kid growing up. I watched tennis, but I don't think I had the same appreciation for it as I do mm-hmm. now. Like, I remember those finals against Rafa when, you know, they were battling it out. The 08 Wimbledon final. I really want to go back and re-watch that entire match now with the perception that I have now or the perspective that I have now because I go, I've, well, I've, I've never practiced with Rafa, but I've practiced with Roger. I've seen guys who are at that level or, you know, watch them up close. And I go, this is, as a 14-year-old, you don't, you just, you're watching them hit the ball back. Oh, that's a good shot. But now I'm like, that shot was incredible. Did you (laughs) see the way that he was able to redirect that, come and get that speed? Like, that's, that's not normal. And I think I have a far better appreciation for it now. But Fed is my favorite to go watch. I love watching Novak. One thing that I, and uh, we talked about a little bit during the rain delay was, um, we were talking about some of the best backhands in the Mm. game. And... 
I had this conversation with with someone, and we were going through names from the Nalbandians to the Novaks to the Andres, and we left Andy Murray out the list. And a friend of mine, I think it might have been Francis Tiafo, actually, we were talking with him about it, and he asked me, he said, have you ever played Murray? I said, no, I've just practiced with him. He goes, Murray needs to be in there. So about a week ago, I kind of just went back, and I remember that conversation. I said, let me go watch some some prime Andy Murray, just because since I came on tour, it's been the, the tail end of his career and since the hip surgeries. Let me go go back and watch 2010, 2011, 2013 Andy Murray. That backhand was un- unbelievable, the way that he could just lay into it at any time. Just in it, it has that kind of solid, consistent feel of like a Medvedev. But when he turns and he leans on that right shoulder and just drives through the court, I go, oh, this is that backhand everybody was talking about. So he's somebody that I watch. But I watch that just for more entertainment and just kind of studying the game. But in terms of watching players and kind of learning things and tools that I can do for me. It's probably the feds, the Del Poles, and I'll also go back and watch a lot of guys who like to come forward in modern tennis, like a Stepanik or uh, Lopez, some of those guys, just to try to take little things about the aspect of moving forward and getting getting comfortable at net. All right, man. Well, I, listen, I appreciate your time. I know you got to get over to the courts. How, how can people, you know, people that want to follow your progress, where can they find you? Uh, best bet, honestly, would probably be Twitter. Twitter and Instagram, but may, more so my results, I'll you know post... A repost actually more of my stuff on, on Twitter than Instagram on, at Chris underscore Eubanks nine six on both platforms. So feel free uh, if you really want to keep up, just follow along, and then hopefully you'll be following some good news in the next That's few weeks. Right. That's right, and check out Chris in the Arthur Ashe documentary on CNN. It's on HBO Max also. I believe it's on HBO, HBO Max. Max. Yeah. But what was that like? That was unbelievable. No, so that that <laughs> actually happened back in 2017. We did a, a actually it was a two part thing. We did an Arthur Ashe VR documentary that was about a, it was a short film about 10 minutes that's actually on youtube still uh ash 68 documentary i believe and while i was filming that for two days at forest hills the film director who was also a part of it got some extra footage of me on the side said, hey chris can i see you come over here and hit against the wall can i get this shot this shot and we did some stuff and we kind of kept in contact since 2017 but didn't really think that much more about it i believe two years ago with the u.s open must have been U.S. Open 2019. The VR documentary premiered there in the Fan Center. So I got to go and check it out for the first time with the VR goggles, and it was great. And then the other director who got that extra footage of me said, hey, we got something coming out. It's going to be big. Just we'll keep in touch about it. We'll keep in touch about it. Well, it was, I believe, last year, probably November, December this time. I remember I was at the Atlanta Braves uh, World Series Parade. And the director calls me, and we talk on the phone, and he says the documentary has been a big hit. It's going to show on CNN and HBO Max. Like it, it, it's great. So I got a chance to watch it for the first time when it um, premiered, and I, I thought it was amazing. So you can you can kind of see it's me. It was also uh, another tennis player, I believe Jelani Star, played another double. So they had two doubles of Arthur at different stages of his life, and uh, now it was a cool cool thing to watch. And I learned a lot about it, about him and his career and his you know activism and all that as well. So it was it was a fun time. Citizen Ash. Citizen Ash is the name. You of get a side card after being in that or no? <laughs> I don't know. I'm still waiting to hear back. <laughs> all right, Chris. Thanks so much, man. Have a good day. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Thanks, Mark. Hey, that's it for today. Big thanks to Chris for coming on. There is a lot of tennis happening right now in the world. 
every match has real implications maybe not every match but a ton of matches tour level challenger level guys trying to make it into the main draw of australia guys trying to stay in the main draw of australia people trying to make the year in masters people trying to hit certain ranking bonuses that are in their contracts there is a lot to play for right now a lot of players are tapped you're going to see who has a good attitude who doesn't who's fit whose body's breaking down so it's really a lot to watch right now hit me up on twitter or instagram at mark lucero on both subscribe rate and review to the pod it's at check the mark tell a friend i'll talk to you later i'm out enjoy san diego